I think China and Russia are scared to death of the United States' ability to disrupt military operations. And the more that we do that is stale and, and not thinking uh, in new ways, it, it just helps them. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm JJ Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. Later in the program, Mark Miklos, who heads Spirit Air Systems Defense and Space Business, on how he is growing his portfolio at a company that's better known for its commercial work. And he used to project and map out the United States Air Force's future. Now he is retired Lieutenant General Clint Q. Hynote, uh, who's joining us for a preview of the Air Force Association's Air, Space, and Cyber Conference. That's going to be coming up a couple of weeks from now. And and we have this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE Aerospace. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And of course, GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Air Systems Defense and Space is sponsoring our coverage of the Air Force Association's Air Space Cyber Conference and Trade Show. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Indonesia has signed a Memorandum of Understanding for 24 F-15EXs from Boeing. That was a known order, but now it is written down on paper and signed. Similarly, we knew that Poland wanted 96 Apache helicopters. The State Department has now approved export of those helicopters. Congress still gets to weigh in, but it looks like that's going ahead as well. The Danish and the Dutch are sending F-16s to Ukraine. Last week, we talked about the prospect of Danish F-16s going to Argentina and wondering why they weren't going to Ukraine. Well, it turns out they have enough left over for both. And of course, a big story in the last week, the U.S. Air Force awarding a contract to Jet Zero, a rather small but highly focused company, partnered with Northrop Grumman to develop a blended wing body tanker. You covered this in some detail with the team on the Sunday Business Report and a terrific conversation Tuesday. People should go back and listen to this because it was really good stuff with Brian Schimpf of Anduril. We expect to cover the Jet Zero story in more depth in the days to come, but it shouldn't come as a big surprise that this was awarded. We can talk about why. Let's also note that Northrop's participation in developing that new tanker, along with their just-announced award to develop a Mach 2-plus airliner design in competition with Boeing, may help explain why they decided not to go after the NGAD contract. Looks like things in Palmdale are going to be busy for a little while. JJ, thanks very much. And uh, I think that Palmdale is busy doing a lot of very interesting things uh, <laughs> uh, that go beyond just the B-21. Obviously, any new airliner, whether it's new reconnaissance systems, strike systems, and obviously the next generation air dominance airplane that obviously Lockheed Martin is involved in as Boeing is involved in. We did discuss rather extensively on Sunday's show, the Jet Zero contract. And I think we're going to talk to Q High Note a little bit about that later in the show as well. But I wanted to get your thoughts uh, on 
the competition and also the way that the Air Force is doing this, partnering with a small company, which in many respects will be the prime of the program, and then having the big companies as being the industrial muscle to help realize it. What do you make of this? Because you're suggesting that it shouldn't come as a big surprise, but to many people, it was a pretty big surprise. Right. But remember that the former head of Air Force acquisition, Dr. Will Roper, worked hard to disaggregate design from production from sustainment. And the idea was to award those pieces to different companies. This is a first big example of that, where they've got a prime involved doing what primes do well, which is production, but a bespoke design shop putting forward the concept. This can presage the rise of similar design shops where a bunch of experienced designers like Jet Zero has develop concepts without the need to turn themselves into a big enough company to produce those ideas. It also makes me wonder, how are the primes looking at this? Are they looking at this as an opportunity to close out their own design shops and just hire outside designers? More to come on that story for sure. I think it's utterly fascinating, and it's something that I have uh, advocated for a long time, that uh, you ought to be disaggregating these uh, as much as you can. And I'm just glad that we're giving it a go and seeing uh, how it goes, because you may be a smaller company that has a better vision for the solution, but not able to execute it. This is a little bit like American Bantam, right? Won the Jeep competition, but the United States Army knew that there was no way that this tiny American subsidiary of a British motor car company that had built an innovative scout car that appealed to the United States Army, which is what created the sort of requirement. The classic Jeep was designed in two days by these guys that managed to blow away the U.S. Army. But the U.S. Army also recognized, hey, I need to go to uh, Willis Overland as well as to Ford in order to be able to produce these in quantity. And by the end of the war, we'd made 800,000 of them, a little bit like the consolidated B-24, right? Ford comprehensively redesigned the airplane to allow it for producibility, and we made 18,000 of them. Because they knew how to produce, someone else knew how to design. It's going back to the future. Indeed. Any of the other headlines that sort of jump out at you, right? I mean, the Mach 2 airliner design competition is certainly very interesting where Northrop is going against Boeing. Boeing, a well-established name, obviously, in commercial aviation. Northrop, somewhat less so. And I think that we could say, what, the Northrop Alpha Gamma, right? I think Northrop got out of the airliner business a long time ago. But then again, an airplane that's a certain size that goes Mach 2 might not just be used as an airliner. And there's other areas where Northrop has a long track record that could benefit the design of that kind of airplane for other purposes. Uh, and uh, the company obviously is, has experience building big airplanes, whether it's the B-2 and obviously now with the B-21. I think the Danish and the Dutch story on F-16s, good news uh, that Ukraine is going to be getting that. And obviously, I think we think the United States Air Force should also be partying. And the good news is that the United States has said it's willing to help on training. And I thanks very much for mentioning both the Indonesia as well as the Poland story. Nothing new, but certainly puts pen to paper. What do you say we move on and welcome our guests to the program? They're fascinating people, both, both dealing with the future of aviation, one building it, the other planning it. Let's do it. 
And joining us now is Mark Miklos, the Senior Vice President at Spirit Aerosystems Defense and Space, the man charged with growing defense and space sides of a company that is better known for its extraordinary commercial aerospace portfolio. Mark, thanks so very much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Vago, it's great to be here. Thanks. It's great to uh, have you on. Your predecessor, Duane Hawkins, was charged by your CEO, Tom Gentili, to grow the defense space side of the business to equalize. You guys were Boeing's former aerostructures uh, unit, and your work is overwhelmingly commercial. You guys, in fact, have always been the maker of 737 fuselages that make their journey from Wichita to Renton, where they become airplanes. Unfortunately, there have been a couple of challenges there, but you guys also have been winning some important defense business. You were the CH-53K fuselage uh, maker when Bell One, the future long-range assault aircraft. You guys are going to be building the V-280 fuselages, so that's going to be good business. And you've also been growing it, uh, the business on the classified side, as well as in hypersonics and space. Walk us through your priorities and the strategy to build out the portfolio to achieve Tom's goal of 40% of the company's business coming from defense and space. I think we've uh, we've gone through quite a journey. We, you know, If you go back to CH-53K, this is uh, quite a ways ago. It was really the first pure military program for Spirit. We did the derivatives, the P8 and the tanker, uh, but this was really the first entrance into building the defense portfolio. And if you go through the evolution of the business uh, up until the last three years, we've really been focusing on developing a market segment focused strategy around not deciding necessarily just what we were going to do, but also, of course, what we weren't going to do. And it's landed us in this position today where we've had a, a pretty significant, uh, successful track record of building an unprecedented pipeline is what I would consider it for Spirit. So we're well on the path of being on some really, really strong programs. You met, mentioned our participation on uh, the new uh, down select and the win on Flara. But I think to me, the, the most important thing is to stay focused around what we're adding in terms of value to the customer. We're a, what we consider sort of a super tier one or a tier one plus, thanks to our pedigree and, and legacy really coming out of the commercial aircraft uh, business of really designing and building aircraft structures. And, and again, not only aircraft structure, but full integration of substructure components, so large chunks of the aircraft. So the focus for us and the team really is about how do we convert that pipeline uh, we're beginning to do it. You see it on some of the public wins that we've been able to talk about, but it's it's really executing uh, the entire portfolio, uh, for everything from, from commercial execution all the way through technical uh, maturation through EMD and then really delivering uh, rate production as we see us transitioning on programs like CH53K and even our partnership on the B21 program. We just saw an announcement that a very new company, Jet Zero, would team with Northrop Grumman to develop the Air Force's next generation refueling system. In this case, Jet Zero is leading the design, Northrop the manufacturing. We've heard from the Air Force for some time now that they want to disaggregate design and manufacturing. You've been making the case to a lot of primes to take a bigger role on that production side. What does the Jet Zero announcement mean for the whole industrial dynamic uh, with regard to aerospace? And how's that pitch to do more design work being received by the primes? So Jet Zero, again, this is, I think we're still uh, watching with uh, a lot of interest and in seeing how that formulates. We saw the, the recent 
announcement with the Northrop and Jet Zero obviously being named as that participant. So, it, you know, we do work uh, with the team on the design side. It is truly, though, a partnership. This is pretty early work initially on some of the structured design. But, you know, we hear them going back and forth with regards to whether we're going to go commercial, uh, focus on commercial first. I think that's uh, the large interest at this point. And then, of course, what does that mean for a defense derivative as it moves forward? We're actually not deep into it at this point. We're waiting to see how that shakes out. And I know there's been some pretty good funding allocated for them. But in terms of our ability to support programs, not just like that, but just really pure defense programs from a design build, we've seen our pipeline, as I've mentioned, grow pretty significantly. And I think that is a testament to the changing winds within the primes and, and really what the DOD and ultimately the warfighter needs. I'm not in a meeting that doesn't start with, we need more and we need it faster. So what does that mean? That means in order to accelerate, you need really true partnerships with you know, your tier ones, your suppliers, or really true partners on the programs. And we've been able to prove what value that does bring to the programs in terms of accelerating, not just the development, but the full scale to high rate production. Our ability to take on large segments of the programs and then be able to provide that design build, design for manufacturing, uh, everything from a digital engineering uh, all the way through what, you know, something like a full-scale determinant assembly looks like on some of these programs. So that, I think it's been definitely an evolution over the years. Uh, I will say I've seen just in the recent couple of years, it's an unprecedented partnership that we've seen with our customers with regards to allowing us to participate more on the design build and providing full integrated structures. Let me uh, pull on that a little bit, right? We're in the midst of a multiplicity of revolutions, right? On the design side, on the production side, on the material side, on the AI side, uh, on the power side. I'm joining you from the sidelines of the Fed Supernova Conference in Austin, where we're seeing all of these uh, trends sort of come together. And so I just commend to the audience. It's, it's a really terrific event if you want to put your finger on the pulse of where we are on innovation with a lot of brilliant smaller folks there. You guys have been investing in composites technology and additive technology. That's a conversation that I used to have with Duane and others, uh, Eric from your team, who's just a terrific engineer as well. Walk us through what it is you guys are doing to sort of operationalize some of these revolutions because the, you know your business case is to go to the bigs and say, look, I can do this actually better than you can in-house and, and other people can. Walk us through what you're doing across that piece from the design side of it all the way to the production side. Well, I think, and I'm going to be very careful not to get myself in trouble on the technical side of things. So, But I will say part of this is really understanding, tying some of these new technologies, whether it's digital thread start, starting very early to make sure that you you have really seamless integration with the customer uh, or customers uh, in a lot of ways to manage change. But also there's been a lot of discussion around new build process or, or innovations around full-scale determinant assembly. The one thing we've been able to do is really customize these new capabilities and technologies to meet the requirements of the program. So one of the mistakes I think, and we've even seen some, you know, within spirit early on, but been able to, Again, thankfully, with a lot of the work we did on 737 with, with some of the components and the pylons and, and whatnot, on how do you build at high rate, you know, minimize tooling, low cost, and scaling quickly. And the key is, is, is customizing that, what that looks like for the program. So you think about what the design and the rate or the scale of that production has a lot to do with how much you, you sort of throw at it in terms of these capabilities. So the last thing you want to do is just, you know, 
throw the kitchen sink in terms of new capabilities and technologies at programs if it's not really going to add a ton of value. So I think Spirit, what we've been able to do is establish a really pragmatic approach to what is appropriate for the program, whether it's because of the design of, you know, what we're building or, you know, rate, whether it's prototyping, you know, or something that is going to be scaled to full scale, you know, high rate production. So, so I think that's where we, you know, we're structures, as you mentioned, we're, we're experts in composites technology. We're experts in industrialization as it relates to how do you design for manufacturing and then how do you scale at full, you know, rate as quickly as possible. That's really where we're focusing you know, a lot of these innovations you're, you're mentioning for sure. But again, it's not something that you, you can't just blindly say, oh, well, we, we do this or we do that. It's got, it really has to be a thoughtful approach of how we're going to apply these new capabilities to these programs, because you can find yourself doing a lot of extra things. They could be really exciting and flashy and, and digital, if you will. But, but if they don't add value in the long run, then it's, it's not going to work for us. Now, two of the fields that you're looking at for growth are space and hypersonics. The space game is completely changing. Lots of new entrants in that field. The hypersonics market has been scattershot, but clearly that's a big future. But you're going up against a lot of established firms in that area. How are you competing on a more granular level in those markets against either the new or the older firms? What's the value add and advantage that the Spirit team brings? I'll talk a little bit about space, but then we'll get quickly into, you know, what we see our value is on the hypersonic side. So space, actually really both of these, it's, it's really a similar value proposition. We, again, these, these industrialization, you know, design for manufacturing capabilities and uh, what we considered really truly distinctive competencies for spirit. These apply across whether you're building aircraft structures or, or missile structures, you know, and tying that to the need, as I mentioned before, every question or every meeting starts with how do you how do you build more? How do you move faster? How do you get them get them deployed quicker? So so a lot of these capabilities from our industrialization prowess they transfer very very nicely. So on the space side, same thing. We're we have a, a pretty strong you know it's a small part of our business, but the, the team up in Maine has a really strong heritage on high temperature composites for NASA and, and deep space exploration. They'll always be at the forefront of that with their partners at NASA. What we're trying to do is how do we deploy, again, in a pragmatic approach, how do we add value to some of the space applications? So we are really trying to look at the best value. And a lot of times that works into the national security aspect of it, maybe higher technical challenges, things where we can, you know, maybe not the high rate production that you see out of some of the commercial space applications. But that's that's something we're very interested in. We're we're still trying to do the assessment in some of the key market segments to make sure that we're at value. We're not not just spinning our wheels. But the, the hypersonic side for sure, this has been obviously identified as a strategic priority. It's it's been top priority from a technical maturation for DOD. And we've been started again with the with the team up in Maine. They it's public, they they do participate on common hypersonic glide body on the on the thermal protection systems. We're looking at how do we develop that next generation technology, but really, as we've all seen, the strategic, you know, the importance of the air breather technology for DoD. I think they've clearly uh, communicated that that's that's the priority because, you know, it's it's the lowest cost, it's maybe the easier the scale from a from a high rate production, and you can also, at the end of the day, fit more of these things on a on a bomber. So, so that's where Spirit 
you know, the Wichita team and the heritage around industrialization and taking structures to being able to, to really design complex structures for high rate production. And that's what we've been working with some of our, our partners in industry to participate on. How do we, how do we develop things that that are a lot more, you know, a lot of this stuff that has been developed, this is when you're asked to build a prototype, you don't necessarily do it with, with high rate production in mind. So our, what we're bringing to the table is how do we take that ultimate OML design or, or structure envelope and design it for high rate production. And that's, you know, everything we've learned on commercial aircraft, metallic structures, even getting in a high temperature metallic systems like the Inconels. And the Haynes, this is, you know, this is where we're bringing our expertise, not just in fabrication, but how you design a structure that can be produced at a high rate. So that's, that's our focus for hypersonics. So that's, that's where we're continuing to see interest. I, uh, I love any interview, Mark, that introduces the word Inconel uh, sure. as, as an alloy, <laughs> go, go X-15. Bravo, uh, and uh, you know, it's it's just awesome. We're an airplane lovers uh, and materials lovers <laughs> podcast. Sure. Even the greatest companies have challenges. There certainly have been challenges uh, on the 737 side of the business, some recent with the news this uh, week, but others because of a slowdown of production and some of the challenges obviously Boeing had uh, in in the wake of the deadly uh, accidents. And that program is critically important to you guys from a revenue uh, perspective at the company. And indeed, one of the drivers of Tom's strategy and the company's strategy has been to expand your side of the business on that. Do the challenges on the commercial side of the business impact your access to resources or reputationally as you're trying to grow your side of the business uh, ultimately? Obviously, we're, we're all part of the same team. I sit with Tom and my counterparts on the executive leadership team on a regular basis and you know, running the business, you know, solving problems for the, for the organization. And obviously, that's a big part of you know, the discussions and you know, we're all work work as one team to, to solve that and get us moving in the right direction. So, you know, at the same time, though, we are a different division. Uh, it is run very differently. The programs are different, not just technically, but but in terms of how, you know, rate production. Uh, and then on top of it, where we're at in terms of what, what the needs are for the programs, there's a lot of development efforts with our advanced development team that have very different challenges and very different needs from the leadership in order to play. So it's uh, obviously it's a part of our, our business, but we do a very good job of insulating the defense because of those different needs and what our tasks are in front of us. And ultimately what the goal is to be, you know, 40% plus or minus, you know, as a part of the business and in, in our diversification strategy, Tom and the board does a really good job at supporting defense, uh, making sure that, that there's minimal impact in our customers. At the end of the day, they see that, I'm not going to lie and say we don't get questions about it, but we address them. And up until this point, they've they've liked the answers and and they feel really good about how we're how we're supporting the defense business and the strategy. But I just wanted to dive in here. So you know, 40% is the goal. Where are you guys right now in that mix, commercial defense and space at this point? Last I checked, we're about 15% of revenue. You know, we we do talk about 40% as a target. We'd love to be greater than that. If we were lower than that, it'd still be a, a huge success. A lot of that depends on, you know, I, you, you know, the juggernaut that is, this is a commercial business when it's ramping at full rate in the 737 program, what that does. Obviously, organic growth is very strong right now. Once we get a little more comfortable, you know, 40% does take into account that we, we're going to have to start looking at inorganic plays when we're ready to do so uh, in the future. But but yeah, it's it's a great it's a great goal to to, to throw out there. At, at the end of the day, if it's if we directionally get 
pretty close to that. I mean, it's going to be a, a ridiculous success across the board. And I think ultimately our customers and even the shareholders are going to be pretty excited about that. And the 4040 number is roughly what year are you guys shooting for, right? Because you're still early in V21, early in V280, early in, right? I mean, so all of those expand and you guys also have a lot of classified uh, work. What year are we, are you shooting for that uh, 40% number? I think when it was originally established, it was within the decade. We have to take a look at obviously always assessing what that looks like in terms right. of you know, recovery on the commercial side. But the good news is, is the defense side is is not slowed down one iota. And, you know, we're at the point where we really got to be smart about what we're deploying. I know you guys want to talk about resources, but it is our number one priority. So we just got to make sure that we're deploying our resources on the highest value, uh, not just for spirit, but ultimately deliver the warfighter what, what they need in terms of capabilities. And that's where we're we're sitting really at the, at the tip of the spear on that. We love talking about systems. We love talking about what comes out of the factory. But none of that happens without people. You were mentioning resources. Talent is one of those resources. It's a challenge across the industry. Companies are having to pay more and more for good people. Spirit just struck a deal with its unions for a historic pay rise because you need that kind of talent. Can you walk us through your people strategy and how that's merging with your overall investment strategy? JJ, I love the fact that you said people strategy because that's exactly what we have named it internally to make sure that what we have established is an objective to attract and retain the best talent. And I always throw out the top 10% talent pool that we can get and we can compete on. So, you know, ultimately this is a bit of a, not, not new, new element because it's, you know, there's been competitive labor markets. There's been significant growth in a lot of business and I've been able to participate in a lot of that in, in some of my prior assignments, but but this is really un unprecedented in terms of all the factors, whether it's coming out of COVID, whether it's the sort of Gen Z, I think it's Gen Z sort of mindset around what work-life balance looks like up to and including, you know, the factor that defense is, it's tough to foresee any any event in the future that could be bad for the defense business, right? So we're going to grow, we're going to continue to grow. And the number one priority in the defense business is our people and, and talent acquisition and, and the retention of that talent. So for us, it's really, again, Thinking about the strategy, attract and retain top 10% of the talent, you know, and this is heavily engineering focused. And then think about how do you do that? You, you provide an environment that people really want to be a part of. It's hard to argue how cool stuff we do on the defense side. So so that's really about making sure that we can get the message out. Once we get people in the door, that's it's pretty easy to, to get them excited about it. But it's really just about developing that environment. So it's a formal strategy. This is how we're how we're going about it. Uh, we've had really great success near term, and we'll continue to do this. This isn't something that's going to end, not even the, the far term. This is just a part of the culture development of the business, making sure we're developing an environment in every aspect that people want to come to work for. And then it's getting in forums like this just to get the message out and make sure that people know, you know all the great stuff, obviously, that Spirit's participating in. We've got a couple of seconds left before we part. What are going to be some of the big messages uh, you guys are bringing to AFA this year? I think it's, again, back to the messaging. Spirit brings the capability to move quick, move fast, develop, design and build, and then ultimately scale quicker as, as a part of the picture as we'd be able to do if we if we work. So I think that message is, is continuing to grow in terms of our differentiation on the industrialization uh, aspect of, and design build, very complicated structures, and ultimately 
as we all say, we're patriots and we want to make sure we give the warfighter the capabilities they need to make sure we ultimately can be successful long term. Mark Miklos, who's running the defense and space operation at Spirit Aerosystems, thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. Very good to have you. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And hey, if you like the Air Power Podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome onto the program a man who spent most of his career looking into the future. He is retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Q Highnote, who served as the A-5 running Air Force Futures. He is also Dr. Highnote, and he now provides similar insights to private industry at Highnote Strategy, a company he founded after retirement. Q, it's great to have you on the Air Power podcast, uh, whether you're at warfighting integration capability as A-5 or in any other role. Thanks so much for joining us. Vago, it's so great to be with you and JJ on this program. We've had some great conversations in the past, and I'm looking forward to today's. Indeed, uh, we'd love to welcome you uh, on and would love to have you be a regular voice on the program. You've been somebody who spent his career looking at the future and sometimes confronting leaders as well as the force with some inconvenient truths and important ways to look at the future and capabilities. The AFA's annual meeting is a terrific opportunity for the service leadership to put its vision out there. It's a challenging time now. I mean, the current Air Force Chief of Staff, General C.Q. Brown, is in tap for chairman. And of course, General Alvin is tapped to become the chief. But unfortunately, his confirmation hearing is in the middle of AFA, uh, unfortunately. So that may tampen a little bit on some of the aggressive communicating we might see. But again, Secretary Kendall always has an ability to charge up uh, an audience and, and to make some news. What is it you expect to hear at this year's Air Space Cyber Conference? Vago, I tell you what, this is going to be an interesting one. There's so much going on beneath the surface. It's hard to believe that we're already back here again with September coming up. And it's time for what I think is the biggest week of the year for the United States Air Force, the Space Force, and the department as a whole. It's the time when everybody's listening. And that's why it's so important to get it right. And I think what we're going to see are some real interesting issues that the undersurface part is going to bubble up. I, I'm looking for five things. The, the first is the elephant in the room, which is if there was ever a year where we needed a budget, an on-time regular order budget, it was this year in fiscal year 24. We need that because there's so much new stuff in this budget and the Air Force needs that stuff to change. But alas, it does not look like that's likely. In fact, it looks like that we're looking at the very least a, a continuing resolution again and probably uh, higher than normal threat of a shutdown. I'm looking for how much the administration through the department talks about that. Are they going to push back on that or are they going to just kind of accept that it's going to be politics that drives our budget? The second thing, and you've mentioned it already, I call it the rhinoceros in the room, and that is with the current hold on the military nominees, and that includes General Brown, General Alvin, and so many others, there's hundreds by now 
Uh, it's been going on since the spring. But with that current hold, you've got a lot of the leadership that is either in lame duck status, meaning that they should have moved on, but they haven't, and their successors are already named, or they're waiting for their next job. And in either case, they really can't talk very much about that uh, that next job for sure. And so that is going to be a, a little bit of a problem when you're talking about the major issues and the major changes that the Air Force is going to have to have going forward. But the one leader who is not encumbered by that is Secretary Kendall. And the third thing I'm looking for is I think his speech is going to be big. One reason is because it's going to be one of the only true keynotes. But another is that he has got to find a way of exciting, energizing, and, and promoting that sense of urgency throughout the force. Uh, you, you know, he leads with a sense of urgency. Anybody that knows Secretary Kendall knows this. And I think he's probably becoming one of the more transformational leaders in Air Force history, but he needs the rest of the force to come along and he's going to have to really work on that uh, in this speech. Fourth, I am looking for a, uh, a new Space Force Chief of Space Operations and to see where the vision that uh, General Saltzman has for the Space Force. You know, I, I had some big disagreements with their timing. Uh, in the last two years, the in 2021, it was the baggy pants. In 2022, it was the song. And I believe that those cultural icons stepped on the big message. And the big message has to be, we need a space force because we might have to fight in space. And it's not okay if Russia and China have uh, weapons in space and weapons being able to shoot us down and we don't have anything to defend. And so I think General Saltzman is well on his way to to writing that wrong and explaining the Space Force better. In fact, there was a Washington Post article that just got published today about that. And then finally, and I think this is incredibly interesting, you have General Brown moving up, you have General Alvin coming in, and the smart money right now is that it's probably going to be Jim Slife to become the vice chief. And of course, Jim Slife was the commander of Air Force Special Operations Command not that long ago. So for the first time in a really long time, you have an intentional set of choices where you have a chief and a vice chief that are not fighter pilots. And so the question I'm asking myself is, are we watching the fall of the fighter generals? Is it time for the Air Force to turn a page to a new set of leaders that have a new set of ideas and are not quite as homogenous as the fighter pilot community has been. Those are the big themes I'm looking for, and I'm really excited to hear what happens and to see it happen as it does. And that's a terrific list, and we could do a whole show on really any one of those five items. But let me follow up with a question that may seem a little unfair, but you're not wearing the uniform anymore. So what would you like to hear that you don't expect will actually get said? Well, the thing that I'm tracking on the outside that I am really excited about is the potential for disruption of air power in a good way. I think we can lead this disruption. By the way, I think China and Russia are scared to death of the United States' ability to disrupt military operations. And the more that we do that is stale and, and not thinking uh, in new ways, it, it just helps them. We have an incredible ecosystem of innovators out there inside and outside of government. We need to take advantage of them. I'll give you an example. 
Right now in Ukraine, we are watching drone warfare happen. It's not just happening in the air. It's happening in land. I think it's going to happen at sea, too. But the air is the most important thing in the Ukrainian war right now. And what we're finding is the more that you have at a cheaper price point, you get a very interesting return on that investment. In fact, I've been talking with one of the companies that is providing Ukraine with uh, with these drones, and they're seeing an entirely new set of concepts come to the fore because of the ability of these drones to change the calculus in the battle space. I would like to see the United States Air Force embrace that, embrace this disruptive type of drone warfare at the same time that we're doing these other things. We're not talking high price points here, but I would like to see us embrace this uh, this drone warfare and be able to use numbers and risk against the enemy and not have those used against us. And I don't think we're going to hear a lot about that. I don't think a lot of the companies that come to the uh, airspace and cyber conference want, are very interested in producing cheap things. They like the profit margins of the systems that they sell us. And so unfortunately, I think we probably won't hear a lot about the cheap, reusable, or reusable, but but attributable type of drones and what they bring to the battle space. But it doesn't matter because it's changing the battle as we know it right now in Ukraine. Let me pull on that uh, a little bit too. They're making this in part because the service historically has gone for uh, the bigger, the more exquisite systems, right? Yes. I mean, we've been developing the F-35 now for three decades, uh, and yet it's the Block 4 airplane that's the breakthrough airplane. It's the Joint Advanced Tactical Missile that's going to be the next generation kind of capability. The Secretary of the Air Force, as you said, Secretary Kendall, could not be pushing with greater urgency across the department, across the administration as a voice for change. The chief has somebody is somebody who has been saying accelerate change or lose since the day that he took office. He was doing that when he was at PACAF. He's done that across his career to try to drive and push innovation, right? I mean, I guess it's a two-pronged question. What more is it going to take to get the service moving in the direction that is so clear is important from an urgency standpoint? What more does it take for us to try to balance these kind of capabilities of the low and the faster, but the high and the faster as well. So I think what I think is that the operational imperatives that Secretary Kendall has been uh, working on for quite some time, and of course, I was very heavily involved in that. I think generally that produces a really good set of roadmaps forward. And generally, I'm pleased with the modernization pathways that we have. And at this point, we need to get the resources and execute. That said, I am not convinced we've reached a cultural tipping point. And I think that all you have to do is go look at General Brown's um, recent memo on mission command, which basically said, again, you are empowered. Go out and take charge, assess the risk, mitigate the risk, but take the risk. I'm not convinced that that message has permeated through the force. And until the message of mission command permeates, I am skeptical about our ability to be able to truly fight in the intensity 
and the widespread geographies that we're going to have to fight. Because here's the deal. You're going to be cut off from a higher headquarters and you're going to have to figure out what to do. And I think that we've laid the foundation and nobody has done it better than General Brown. And I, I just don't get the sense yet that we've totally taken that and ran with it. I have a saying that I said when I was inside, which was that everybody wants to be empowered until they're empowered. And I think we have now come <laughs> to the point where people, especially Air Force leaders, are empowered, and we have to see what they're going to do with that empowerment. And I really hope that we have leaders of moral courage that step out and figure this out. If we don't, we won't change enough, and no modernization program in the world is going to help that. So I think you've got the pathways toward modernization, but it's the culture now that needs help. And I actually think it's likely that Secretary Kendall, for one, uh, will talk about that. Secretary Kendall realizes that at this point, he's really focused on these operational imperatives and the modernization pathways that were the result. And he needs to be able to focus on organization and culture as well. And I think you may see that as a major theme in this conference. And if so, I think that would be the right call. I think that's exactly where the leaders, the Air Force leaders need to put their effort. But I have to say that I, in, in the decades of covering the service, the message coming from the MAGCOM, the major command commanders, is very encouraging in how they are trying to empower a new generation of leaders and encourage them to take more responsibility and to give them a longer leash and say, hey, it was early in our career that we were given the opportunity to act and that we have to reinstill that. I mean, you're saying you're seeing it, but you're not seeing it as broadly I, well, as we well, need I'll, to see it. Well, I'll tell you something that comes from my experience. Uh, before I retired, I taught at every wing and group commander course. And so I got a chance to influence every rising group and wing commander. It was a great honor and my privilege in my career. And I would talk about this and I would be very blunt with them about the types of things they're going to have to do in their leadership to execute mission command and make, making sure that their people can. And it, they did not yet feel empowered. They did not yet feel supported. And that's just what I saw. And I talked with them one-on-one. -on -one. I talked with them in groups. And I tried to get them to understand that if they would take a step out in faith, allow the system, allow these leaders to change. And don't be afraid to be the first one to do that thing that you know needs to be done. So we had great conversations about leadership development. I just want to see it happen where that's the norm, not the exception. This is an event where industry and the service come together. The operational imperatives have been out there for a long time, have not changed. A lot of your work at AFWIC and at Air Force Futures has been briefed around town, has been out there for a long time. Are you seeing industry respond to those and start to move out on its own? Or are they hanging back and waiting until it all becomes enshrined in the budget process? So the answer is yes and no, of course, because it always depends. But the thing that I would say is 
Without a doubt, we are seeing that when we produce a demand signal to the defense industry, they respond. A great example is the collaborative combat aircraft. If you walk the floor this year, there will not be a one of the, the big uh, corporations booths. All of them will have a uncrewed aircraft being featured prominently. Five years ago, that was not the case. So we're clearly seeing movement along the lines of what types of modernization we have to do. I have worried for a long time that our defense industry, especially the bigger corporations, are concerned about disruption. And the disruption being that certain types of warfighting concepts might actually disrupt the products that they sell and, and maintain today. And of course, there's profit margins associated with that, profit margins that they need to be able to go to their shareholders and to be able to talk about the, the health of the company. I understand that. That's American capitalism, and that's the way it should be. But at the same time, I think that there is an entire class of the defense industry that is prime and ready to disrupt the defense industry. And I think you're going to see more and more of those companies be effective in disruption. So I think you're going to see a lot of the same when it comes to, say, for example, the primes. But I think it's going to feel different on the periphery uh, where you've got these young, very hungry organizations coming in with some really great ideas about disrupting the status quo. That's healthy for tomorrow's warfighter. We want that. We want that competition. We want to expand the competition. And of course, if you're uh, it's sitting on top of the defense industry, that is threatening. I understand that. But also, I understand what tomorrow's warfighter needs. And they need that competition. So I'm always going to be on the side of increasing the competition, increasing the amount of ideas that come to the fore. And I think that means great opportunities for some of these young companies that want to work in the defense space. And I'm excited for them. I, two days ago, interviewed Brian Schimpf, Andrew's co-founder and CEO. And he seemed to think that actually even the large companies, that the industry is changing and that it has been the influence of some of these newer innovative companies that are coming up, but also not just the rhetoric, but the action of the services. You've heard the secretary talk about this, the chief talk about this, the assistant secretary, uh, Andrew Hunter, has joined us on the program and has talked about this as well. Q, do you see the new Jet Zero contract, uh, the United States Air Force putting a demonstrator contract, $235 million? Uh, the prime on it is Jet Zero, a small, innovative company, the ex-Douglas people who've been looking at this technology for a long time. And actually, the bigs are in the supporting role mm. in this, whether it's mm. Northrop Grumman or RTX mm. and Pratt & Whitney and the like. Is that a game change from your perspective in the way that we do things? Should we look at this as, as a break, as a message, as a signal? Yeah, Vago, you bring up great points. And uh, what I, I think I have two points of optimism and a caution when it comes to the Jet Zero announcement. The first uh, is that, hey, this is what the United States ought to be doing in aerospace. We ought to be trying new things and developing new types of aircraft. And, and this is good not only for military applications, but also for commercial applications. I've had some of the big logistics companies tell me that they wished 
that the Air Force would help them develop a body like this because they know it could help them when it comes to things like transatlantic flight and other long routes. So I'm really happy about that. What you bring up about the kind of the inverse relationship between Jet Zero and Northrop, I think is also groundbreaking. And I'm really excited to see that uh, Northrop took a step here and was willing to support Jet Zero in this uh, proposal. And I think that that is going to have big repercussions, good repercussions throughout the industry. My caution is that I wouldn't want people to think that this is the only way forward for tanking, uh, for air refueling for the Air Force. And the reason is this type of body is probably better suited for long flights, uh, lots of gas, but maybe less booms or less drugs, less way to get that gas off the airplane. Whereas it's very possible that as we get closer and closer to the enemy and engage with the enemy, we're going to need more airplanes with less gas, but more ways of getting that gas to the fighting airplanes. And, and so I actually think we can be a both and in this space. Uh, I'm excited about what Jet Zero has proposed and what the Air Force is moving out on. And I'm also excited that we probably need to look at another concept of tanker that is smaller, less gas, but more ways of getting that gas to the offloaders. General Clint Hynote, terrific of you to join us on the Air Power podcast. We very much look forward to having you back. This is a voice you're going to hear a lot more of. Vago and JJ, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. <laughs>